Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Well, let's first then talk about this anxiety thing. <clears throat> and I want to hit you with that disturbing example, which I remembered the other night. I was hanging out with a family and and the, the mother of the two daughters in the household told them, can you all hear me okay? I want to make sure I only have to say this once. All right, cool. Thank you. She told them in front of others, think of me as the tuna can bobbing along in the sea. The tuna can that can't see me but is nevertheless looking. She says to her children, I used to have great tits until you sucked them off. Now, don't get caught up in the verbiage of things being sucked off, but focus on what we're doing here at the level of anxiety. If the anxiety point in the case of the oral drive would be not a desire to be fed by a full other, and that's important to note here, the mama in question at this point is taken to be a very full other, in this case, full of milk. At the level of anxiety, I told you, this is anxiety about the breast potentially drying up. In other words, there not being a lot of milk there. In this case, the mother would pass from being a full feeder to a lacking and thus desirous being. That's why we go from an unbarred A here to a barred A. The mother is now seen to be lacking, represented in the graph of desire by this element, a signifier of mother's lack. And that was pretty much what this lady trotted out, was that she used to have great tits and thus be an object of desire and a sexual being, presumably in exchange, until these little desirous beings showed up and drained her, sucked her tits off. Here, the child's dependence on the mother for sustenance is targeted, called out, signaled, and addressed, kicked back to the child, and called for a response. Account for the fact that it was your lack that left me with mine. You see how this is working? Here is our child. Here is the lack in them that is bigger for a partial object here known as the breast. And here is this parent who just showed up and said, I want this back. 
that's mine. I used to have them and now I don't have it anymore. And as a result, I lack, give it back to me. I think this is what Lacan is getting at. As he ramps up to the drives, specifically the oral drive, with this discussion of mammalian existence early on. So you can think of nursing as the basic oral drive here, a desire for sustenance, a desire for the breast. And then did you notice, did you notice this move where Lacan turns from the nursing child to the vampire? What is vampirism? An anxious fantasy or image of the breast drying up and of the oral drive passing from a desire for self-nourishment and comfort and care at the level of nursing to the very destruction of the being that would otherwise keep it alive. Vampirism passing from sucking the milk out of a full other who can produce more later to keep the child alive to sucking the warm vital source of this very being's nourishment, not the nourishment of the child, but the nourishment of the mother. The vampire is a figure of anxiety because it suggests that once the milk runs out, blood is going to follow. And once the sucking passes from milk to blood, Eventually, the mom is not just going to be lacking in milk. She herself is going to die. She will not just be drained of milk, but she will be drained of life itself. You can see Lacan working this out in the 230s. Pages 236 and 238, in fact, are the key passages here. The one on 238, deserves some special attention from us. So flip with me, if you will, to 238. Now, I just flipped back over to this screen. Do you still see the black board in front of you or do you now see me and the rest of us? I see the Skype window now. Okay, great. That's totally fine. As long as you can hear me and we can work through this together. So 236 was one I called out. This is where vampirism is first brought up, but 238 is the one I want to call your attention to. I'd say it's probably a dozen lines up from the bottom on 238. The passage begins, likewise, I haven't brought up the phantasm phantasmatic image of the vampire just for the sake of it. Do you see that? Yeah. The vampire is not dreamt of in the human imagination in any other way than as a mode of fusing or initial subtraction at the very life force where the assailing subject can find, and here's the key point, the wellhead of his jouissance. When I'm working through this table and telling you that after desire comes anxiety and after anxiety comes jouissance, this is one of the passages that I'm vamping on, if you will. This move from the full other loaded with milk to the lacking other, not only devoid of milk, but eventually to be drained of life itself, that's how significant the lack 
and the big other here is, opens the door to something. In fact, notice the use of word here, wellhead. I don't have the French in front of me, but I kind of wonder what is meant by wellhead. Is this like the start of some kind of river? Is this the origin of the Mississippi somewhere deep in Minnesota? Is this the beginning of the flow of a different flow? If it is, it is not the flow of desire and it is not the flow of anxiety. This is the wellhead of jouissance. At the outer reaches of anxiety, when the big other has been drained, not only of what it was we once desired from it, from, but from what it also depends on for its own existence, we now have the source of another stream of experience. And that experience is enjoyment. <clears throat> this is where I'm getting this turn towards jouissance, not just from a careful reading of the table that he's been developing throughout this seminar, but also of the progression that this table suggests. The reading of this table suggests that you will be passing from desire to anxiety and then on the return circuit to jouissance. This is how we start getting to that jouissance, something on the other side of anxiety. You'll also note on the following page, 239, Lacan doubles down. First full paragraph. This is what allows us to justify what the clinic shows us very frequently. And now I'm not a clinician, but if this is what you all are seeing when you work with patients, damn, I must be in the, long, in the wrong line of work. Namely, the fundamental equivalence between orgasm and at least certain forms of anxiety. The possibility of an orgasm occurring at the height of an anguishing situation, the possibility of eroticization, so we are told all over the place, of an anguishing situation that is sought out as such in order to get off on it. So here we have at the peak of anxiety, a bizarre turn towards jouissance a wellhead of the split subject's enjoyment. To the point even of capturing that ultimate experience of jouissance, orgasm. Now, it's tempting to think about this in terms of couples that fight in order to fuck. And that in fact might have a pretty quick turnaround of fight fucking on a regular basis. The notion of makeup sex here comes to mind as well. So also though does this Lacanian notion of enjoying one's symptom. What I would like to suggest is that <clears throat> another way to read this wellhead of jouissance that comes from anxiety is to think about all the ways that we get off on being overwrought all the ways that as anxious, generalized or acute subjects, we find ourselves accessing jouissance at the level of the symptomatic expression of what ails us, of our own anxiety. Enjoying one's symptoms strikes me as another way of talking about the transition from anxiety to jouissance. 
especially if you're symptomatic of anxiety. You might also think of examples where somebody who is anxious passes over into a fit of rage. Rage also counts as jouissance. In fact, I just saw an example of this today. Saw someone leaving my building. I know which car is hers. It's parked on the curb just down the street. I was walking the dog. I just walked by her car. The side window had been busted out the night before. Somebody broke into her car, stole all her shit, whatever. She sees her car window missing and doesn't just open the door leaving the building to go check on her car. She pushes the door so hard that it slams open and hits the side of the building and leaves a dent in the wall. Here we see a moment of anxiety. What has been taken from me? What has been stolen from my car? What am I missing? What an invasion of my personal space. And in San Francisco, it's just like this shit just happens day in and day out. What's been taken from me? I'm anxious about it. What did they take from me when I wasn't there? Hear me now. Transformed into a fit of anger. And here's what happened next. I saw her. I know her. We walk over to her car together. If you've ever seen a broken car window, it's not like all the glass just suddenly falls in. It goes into these little balls, these little cubes that's basically there to cut you up without killing your ass when shit goes south in a car accident, right? If it was all like sharp plates of glass, you'd be fucking dead. All of us would probably be dead at this point. But she starts rattling the, ref the, the remnant cubes of glass out of the window. And sure enough, just because they're tiny cubes doesn't mean they can't cut you. She winds up with not a squirting cut, but a dripping cut that won't stop. Her gash kept oozing to the point that when I was calling the city, basically just to tell them that there's glass on the sidewalk, come pick that shit up. I walk my dog and people up or down the street, you know, pick up the glass and the city will come and sweep it up. I looked down with my phone to take the image and I realized that the glass across the pavement and the sidewalk plate was now splattered with blood. Not sprayed, but drips, large pools, sometimes even a dime size. And I said, yo, 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 you know, you're, you're bleeding. Like, I'm not trying to get all up in that. Like, I'll help you, but like, there's blood now on your car door. There's blood on the sidewalk. This is almost certainly what I came here to tell you about. I didn't realize it, though, until this afternoon when the shit went down, this person had her car broken into. She was in a state of jouissance. Her anxiety very quickly passed over into a much more affective state, a state of bodily intensification, to the point of having her ass carved up on the object of her anxiety and not even notice it. I'm like, how can you not even notice that you got blood at your feet 
there's blood on your car door. And she's like, they didn't even take my audio cable. What she realized, actually, nothing had been taken from her car. Nothing was missing. Things were out of place, but nothing was gone. It was a bizarre experience. I'm not entirely sure what to do with it, but I bring it up as an illustration of the way that fits of anxiety can condition outbursts of jouissance. So these are some examples. Building on what Lacan is saying about nursing and vampirism and this whole imagery of flowing jouissance. It's not our final word tonight, but it is a pausing place because I think it's a pretty wild contention that on the other side of desire is anxiety and on the other side of anxiety is jouissance. Yeah, it, it, it makes me think about the, the hysteric as, I mean, Freud defines the hysteric differently, but um, as, as I mean, he, he begins it with conversion disorder, right? He's thinking about transplanting huge amounts of energy from one place to another, normally into the body for the hysteric, right? Mm -hmm. So, so based on sort of your story, um, is the hysteric just constantly in the state of uh, overflowing jouissance? No, I don't think so. I think, I mean, not for Lacan, at least. I think Lacan, re I, I can't speak for Freud as much, but I think that for Lacan, the hysteric, um, if they're overflowing with anything, it's desire. The hysteric is somebody who is constantly in search of masters, not to be mastered, but in order to undermine them, to show them and to force them to confess that they know dick. All the while, what the hysteric doesn't realize is that that constant provocation of others, of big others, of masterful others, is what gets her off. Now, that does lend itself to jouissance. But I think what I mean here by get off is more like kept in a state of desire, where she's constantly longing for but never allowing herself to access. And I use the feminine here just because from all the analysts I've spoken with, all they say is, listen, I can't say that hysteria is a fundamentally masculine or feminine clinical structure. I mean, don't forget, Freud also learns about hysteria from studying guys coming home from World War I with quote unquote shell shock. He was like, oh, damn, this is hysteria too. So it's never been a strictly feminine position, even though we know the origin of the word hysteria comes from hyster, the word for uterus in Greek, and that whole horrible tradition. But in this case, hysteria would be something that, according to my analyst friends, it's just what they notice. Subjects who come in identifying as women tend to be more inclined towards hysteria, and subjects who come in identifying more as men tend to be more drawn towards obsessional neurosis. It doesn't mean it's always that way. I think what it just means is that when you live in a intensely heteronormative society, the feminized body is inclined towards hysteria in the field of disordered desire, and the masculinized body 
is drawn or lured or pushed towards an obsessional state of disordered desire. And I say disordered because it's not fun to be obsessive. Even if you just have like some obsessional characteristics, that fucking sucks. It's kind of embarrassing. And truth be told, it's not fun to be a hysteric. To be a hysteric is to love being chased, but you never actually get to have great sex. You never actually want to get caught. And in fact, one of the great dilemmas of hysteria is that if all you get off on is provoking other people's desire, then you can never get off on allowing them to satisfy it. Because as soon as you give yourself to them, if they're truly the desirous beings that you've attracted, they don't want you anymore. They only want what they can't have. So the dilemma of playing hard to get, which is a very normal way of realizing hysteria, is that you only attract people who get off on the chase, but don't ever want to catch what they're running after. And as a result, you just wind up fucking lonely. You attract people that like you from afar. You enjoy, if you will, the systematic frustration of your desire. So, Cody, what I would say is that if the hysteric is going to tap into something like jouissance, it is going to be at the level of enjoying their symptoms. And the basic symptom of hysteria is a desire that is constantly frustrated. It lives in a state of frustration. Like, or as I put it earlier, um, it's about being wanted by all and never actually having good sex with any of them. Now, men can do that, women can do that. In the field of everyday experience, you might even say that the masculinized body is one that is taught more than ever to want what you can't have and to not want what comes your way. So it's not, it's not so um, split as that. But I would say that in the case of hysteria and with obsessional neurosis, what you typically see is enjoyment accessed at the level of the symptom, at least according to Lacan. But the basic underlying motor of hysteria is a dysfunctional desire. It doesn't mean that it's not working. It means it's like overworking. It's, um, it's operating but at a level that doesn't allow it to do anything except completely fuck with somebody's life. In other words, it becomes a maladaptive experience and not something that's just kind of like the way we live as beings who um, occupy positions in the symbolic. It's more extreme than that. And that becomes the vessel and the opportunity for jouissance. So that's how I would get hysteria from a Lacanian point of view in the direction of enjoyment at the level of enjoying that symptom it getting off on having your desire frustrated. You know, these people, people who have all these big ideas about all the shit they want to do, and it never quite works out for them. And they just spend their lives in a state of, oh, you know, I totally could have done that. 
I totally could have been the guy. Oh my gosh, I had that idea. I was going to buy Twitter. I can't even believe this guy is going to buy Twitter. That was I was going to buy Twitter. That was my idea. I can't believe somebody did that before me. God, oh, I'm so frustrated. Motherfucker, I'm so frustrated. Elongated musket, this motherfucker shows up. Always buy, I can't believe he, okay. Now, frustration of desire has passed over into jouissance. That's what we're after here. A desire that has been so overwrought that it now functions as enjoyment. Note also that Cody had added an emphasis on the bodily concentration of this energy in the hysteric, which is why the examples that you just heard were all clinging pretty close to experiences of sexuality and other people and couplings of various sorts, embodied experiences. And that for Lacan is the truth of desire. Desire is always embodied and desire is always for another body that's why i always start our discussions of desire by reminding you that it's desire for another the suckling infant experiences desire for the body one part in particular of the maternal figure the oral drive has as its object its partial object the breast and then you have all these stand-ins for that later in life. So somebody with an oral drive or an oral fixation, if you want to call it that, might be somebody who, like you might have a dog, for instance. You might have a dog that when they get nervous, they kind of smack their lips. This can oftentimes be associated with weaning a dog too early. If the dog is pulled away from the nursing mother too early, it can happen with children too. They don't ever have that desire satisfied in any regard. And in fact, it only exacerbates it. You could have people who go from nursing to weaning to sucking their thumbs to chewing on their fingernails to smoking cigarettes to cigarettes that go really well with having a cocktail on the other hand. All these oral drives. Each of those entities, these partial objects, whether it's a pacifier or a cigarette, is a stand-in for the breast that in this case would have been taken away too soon. But these partial objects that incite the drive are all stand-ins for the original partial object, which in this case was the breast. And that doesn't mean you have to have been breastfed in order to have like an oral fixation or poorly breastfed in order to have one either. But I want to get at this notion that the drive always runs a circuit around a certain kind of object. And there's an original version of that object. The oral drive's primary object is the breast. The anal drive's primary object is feces, shit. And that doesn't mean that you're a scatophile and you like people smearing crap all over you. That's not what this is about. It might just mean that you're the kind of person who likes to put away their shit at the end of the day. 
You might be the kind of person who can't go to sleep unless the dishwasher is loaded or unless all the dishes are done. You might be somebody who always has to have the picture perfectly mounted between the two walls so that it's directly centered. You got your tape measure out, your pencil on up the wall. You want to make sure that the poster hangs just right. Now, that's not shit that you're pinning up on your wall, but it is your shit. The same goes for the invocatory drive. Its partial object is the voice, but there can be many other stand-ins for the voice, like a horn that motherfuckers blow on certain holidays. You see, you did the reading, you know what I'm talking about. And it goes on and on. The scopic drive as well. Interestingly, the partial object around which the scopic drive circulates, guess what it is? Yes, it's the gaze. The Somebody, gaze. That's right. Somebody mouthed it but didn't have their mic on. That's exactly right. It's the gaze. Yeah. It's that tin can that can't see you but is looking back at you nonetheless. So that, that seems closest to anxiety, right? Like, I mean, if we, if we sort of riff on the praying mantis situation, right? That the tension or the jouissance that's gained, uh, if, if, if we use anxiety as sort of a starting point, is, is, is in being determined by the other's gaze or, or within the tension of that gaze, right? Are you going to fuck me? Are you going to kill me? Are you, you know, like, right? I'm glad, I mean, what's, yeah. I'm glad you bring that up, Cody, because check this out, y'all. In the chapter on Buddha's eyelids, he's talking about this statue in whose quote-unquote eyes, because they don't exist there, you, can, you can't see a reflection. Nothing is reflected. Now, if you flip all the way back to the very start of this seminar, on page... Six. Starting at the top, the whole thing was well underscored by the fact that as I confessed, I couldn't see my own image in the enigmatic mirror of the insect's ocular globe. We didn't talk about that when we ran the praying mantis example. It's a weird little add on. You know, we get sucked into this example of the praying mantis at the bottom of five, and then he throws this bit at us at the very end. The fact that he couldn't see his own reflection in the insect's ocular globe. And then you flip forward 200 pages to 224 or thereabouts. Let's see if my memory still works. And here you have if I'm not mistaken, there's even a reference in this chapter to the fucking insect. Oh, you may have to find it on your own. But the very same figure is occurring here. Human eyes are like mirrors. If you look carefully, you can see your own reflection in someone else's eyes. That's Lacan's point. But here we have an eye in which nothing is reflected. That conversation which begins on 223 and continues into 224 and all the way through the remainder of this chapter. It's the same eye of the praying mantis. 
So you feel as though the praying mantis is looking at you and it's desirous. You don't know what it wants, but you figure you are somehow caught up in it. But you cannot see yourself in its reflection. This is a mirror that does not reflect your image back to you. And it is also the paradigmatic example of anxiety. Whatever else happens when we look at ourselves in front of a mirror, I would say anxiety is like at the top of my list. Maybe horror, maybe repulsion, maybe some version thereof. Think of all the feelings we have when we look at ourselves in the mirror. I don't know, man. Anxiety is definitely one of them. But what makes me feel even more anxious than seeing myself before a clear mirror is what happened to me the other day. I had just cleaned my bathroom. I windexed the mirror. That shit was polished. It looked so good. And then that night, I'm getting ready for bed. I'm doing my routine. I'm flossing my teeth. And I'm, you know, doing the floss, doing the floss. And I shit you not, a piece of flesh from my dinner came flying out of my mouth and stuck on my clean ass mirror. And I was like, that is fucking nasty. And so I like get a little square of toilet paper and I, and I, and I, and I grab it to like pull it off. And you know what it did? It just fucking smeared. I tried to pull the, the speck of filth off this mirror and it smeared. And I was just horrified with myself. I was such a fucking beast in that moment. I was like a failure because I had done a good job cleaning the bathroom and then I just fucked it up again. And I'm half naked, so I'm, I'm probably not gonna go walking back out into the kitchen and grab the Windex and then go back, you know, I gotta, I gotta get dressed again, I gotta cover up myself. This is very close to the experience of anxiety. This is very close to the gaze. The speck of food on the mirror is the stain and the smear is the stain. It doesn't mean that speck of food is looking back at me. It doesn't mean it has eyes to see me. It means, though, that I'm being watched. I'm still being seen in some way. I'm being called out and called out in a very specific way. The mirror, when it was clean, held my perfect, although highly imperfect, body. It showed me I was whole. My nipples were symmetrical. My body, primo, primo. Everything was squared away. I'm not saying it looked good. I'm a hideous machine. But at least I was a whole machine. I've got my floss in my hands. All my fingernails are about the same length. I don't have too much of a tan line because it's San Francisco and we're all naked all the time anyway, except for newspapers. You have to bring a newspaper with you so that when your bare ass gets on the bus, you can sit on the newspaper. You can be naked as fuck all you want, but you gotta have that newspaper, otherwise you can't ride public transit. Everything else is good to go because they don't want your crack touching the, touching the seat, you know, priorities there, because it might leave a stain. You feel me? I'm not the stain. My bodily form naked in the streets of San Francisco is not the stain. 
The stain is what my ass leaves on the bus seat if I don't have my newspaper with me. Now I bring all this up to tell you about the being that was called forth in that moment. When I was before the mirror, hideous though I am, I was a whole reflected, coherent body. As soon as that smudge appeared, I was broken. There was something in that mirror that no longer reflected me back to me. There was something in that mirror that had been thrown out, cast out of my body, and now became a barrier or a bar to my whole reflection. Now, when I looked at the mirror, what I couldn't see was my whole gestalt, my whole image of myself, my specular image. What I couldn't see was my little I next to little A, my specular image. What I saw instead was what I lack, where I lack, how I lack. What I saw was the flesh from the fact that proves that I'm still that bio-animalistic, annihilating subject of pure need. That food was caught in my teeth all night. How many other people noticed me in that state? They may have been listening to my silver tongue and my $20 words, but all they could think about was that speck of food caught in my teeth. What was on display in my teeth? We have a symbol for that. It's a symbol that you've seen quite often. This is what was in my teeth. This is what popped out. This is what stuck to the mirror. And I went from being your regular old run-of-the-mill desirous subject, living my life in search of what other people want, living my life around lack and desire and the pursuit of all forms of happiness I can manage, to being castrated. That is what popped out of my mouth and stuck to the mirror, was my castration. That was how I now appeared before myself. Not as somebody who had an aging body, but nevertheless, a body still symmetrical in some ways, coherent as every specular image should be. But now I was a body that was stained. There was something off with me. Some part of the mirror no longer functioned. Now, what was reflected in that mirror? when the image of my castration hit it? The answer is on page 224 and 223, nothing. I went from being something to being nothing. And that mirror went from being something in which other things can be reflected to a surface in which nothing is reflected. A surface 
in which nothing is reflected. The nothing here, you know where I'm going to go with this, is the no thing that traces its origin to the name of the Father, to the no of the Father, to the moment of castration, the moment of prohibition, when I was told I couldn't simply cry anymore and get what I wanted. I now had to use words to the very origin of my splitting as a subject. This process of alienation where the subject of pure need has to find their way into and out of the symbolic. That's why he's talking about the beauty stain. That's why the gaze comes up. And that's why I'm so glad, Cody, that you bring up the praying mantis and the eye in which nothing is reflected at the very start of this seminar. Y'all don't even know how good you are. You're on fire. You are on fire in ways. We've been doing this for, we've been doing this five sessions. We got one more ahead of us. Y'all are saying shit you don't even know. I, in fact, I can look around this room right now for the screens I can see, and I can remember shit that each of you has said that has totally blown my mind and left me wondering, holy fuck, I got to account for that somehow. Everybody gets a turn. More questions before I try to take another. Let me go back to our shared screen with all this wackadoo shit up here. So Sam, did you hopscotch from castration back to your ideal ego in that mirror moment? You take, I mean, like, how long did it take for you to <laughs> get back to a man structured yeah. synthetic hole that you know? Yeah, I have to say, um, I tried. When I grabbed the square of toilet paper and, and went back to the mirror, I was like, I can fix this. I can make this whole again. It's gonna be okay. No one has to know. And I can leave the, the, the bathroom and, and it, it's almost like it will not have happened. See what I'm saying? Now, I don't mean that in that moment I would foreclose the bit of that came out as if to say that didn't happen and that didn't occur. Not that extreme. You hear me now alluding to psychosis in response to the name of the father. I'm not going to say that I disavowed that moment. Here I'm alluding to perversion and the operational logic thereof, which is disavowal. I basically repressed it. I was just a stone cold neurotic dipshit in that moment. And I tried to wipe it off. And that Cody was the extent of my effort to regain my ego, to put the shit back online so that all my efforts at cleaning, whether it's the mirror or my teeth, notice the imageries I'm using here. This is this struck me for many reasons. It's a freshly cleaned mirror, and there I am trying to freshly clean my teeth in front of it. It's all about tidying up, cleaning things up. And that's when it all falls apart. Now, I'm not saying I was crying at the toilet. 
and you know whatever it wasn't like i you know completely fell apart it wasn't like there was an existential crisis begun in that moment but it's that kind of shit that lacan has in mind we talk about anxiety in all these big states we talk about the way that the big lacking other forces us as lacan says on 46 to turn our fundamental negativity namely our castration into a positivity that guarantees the function of the other. Here he means the function of the other as whole. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm quoting from page 46 of our seminar. This is where he's talking about the neurotic shrinking back from the big other as lacking and the big lacking others demand that the split subject, show it, prove it, show me your castration. Don't show me that you lack, show me the cut, show me the scar where the knife was inserted. I don't wanna see your foreskin that was removed. What I wanna see is the scar tissue around the head of your dick. Show me. That is at a profound extreme level what it feels like to be anxious. What would have been experienced as an opening for desire, here symbolized in the removal of foreskin, and now becomes a sign of your dependency, of the fact that you're not whole that something's been removed from you. You're missing a part. You've been cut. And the big other says, show me. I want to see it. And that's a point of anxiety. And what I've suggested here tonight is that in that moment, the usual course of things where the symbol for castration, lowercase fee subtracted in parens, giving way to object A, a cause of desire, an opening for desire, is reversed. In anxiety, the big other shows up and takes the opening in which you would have otherwise pursued your desire and says, yeah, yeah, let's go back a step though. Let's talk about where that opening came from, about the cut, not the gap that's left behind, but the incision that produced it. Show me where you're cut. That's the moment of anxiety. According to Lacan, and here we're, all we're doing is we're reading the seminar carefully and we're just working with the terms he's given us. I don't know if any of this makes any sense, but I think it's pretty coherent with what he's been up to here. And I am prepared to map this thing out in a diagram that is, it has more parts than any diagram I've ever drawn for Lacan. I don't know if it's gonna make sense, but it's a map of sorts. And it kind of looks like what happens when you flush a turd down the toilet. We're about to do it, but I wanna make sure that we get questions answered before then.
Okay, you all. Here we go. What I'm going to now try and do, emphasis on the word try, is combine a bunch of the stuff we've been talking about into a single image. And I'm going to try and write small because Lord knows this is going to take a minute. Okay, I think it's all there. And now we can talk about it and work it through. Here's where things start. This is the subject of pure need, this J zero that we've been messing with and the Delta that symbolizes this mythical presupposed state this utero experience that we've talked so much about. Now enters the imaginary from the here and now of the all in the process of becoming. That is a quote from Lacan to this imaginary triangle that we've been working with all about the mother's desire. This is a shift from the here and now to the imaginary. So far, this is all review. Here, we see a shift from the imaginary to the symbolic. You may even do better to think of this as an addition. Here is castration. Here is the big other, where this individual subject of pure need must pass through the defiles of the signifier and the big other resulting in this process known as castration. Now, if you recall the table that we've been working with, here's the S passing over into the A of the big other in the process known as castration. And you know that two things come out of this process. The object cause of your desire and a split subject. What you see here is a shift from the symbolic to what in this seminar, Bacan is going to talk about as the real. Because remember, object A is a real part, an irreducible leftover from the process of castration. 
and it results in a splitting of the subject. This is what I would describe as a shift from lack to desire. Here's lack and here's the desirous subject. Now the mobilization of desire that we know about is called fantasy. Here we have our split subject living their life in relation to whatever they think other people want, whatever it is that they experience, in other words, as lacking this individual. But we know that desire and fantasy can run aground. And one of the places that fantasy runs aground is when it encounters a signifier of the other's lack. So here what we're seeing is desire to fantasy. Here what we're seeing is from fantasy here to anxiety. In this realm, if you're following along with the graph of desire, here's a signifier of the lack in the other. And you can see that this is actually a tracing, more or less, based on the graph of desire. What we see here in this example is the origin of desire. What we see down here is not the origin of desire, but the origin of anxiety. Now we get to the important stuff. I've told you tonight in reading Lacan that anxiety is not the end of things. This mythical state of jouissance that spins out as follows, eventually resulting in a pass from desire to anxiety is also the wellhead for something else. A shift from anxiety to what on the graph of desire we know as the mathing for the drive. Drive, as we know, as a partial instantiation of desire that we've talked about. And you can see where we're going next. This is the topmost arc in the graph of desire, where drive is passing to a new form of jouissance. Not this mythical form of jouissance that we assign to the subject of pure need, and incorrectly, of course, as we've already noted, because that's not jouissance. Jouissance is a, an effect of prohibition. So it can't pre, it can't be there before uh, prohibition. So we really should put this again in quotation marks here. But a certain other kind of jouissance, what Lacan talks about at the very end of his essay on the graph of desire, where jouissance is given up in order to be regained on the inverse scale ladder arc of desire. Here is proper jouissance accessed via the drive.
at this point, desire is operating, but it is no longer the medium in which you live. Keeping the drive alive is about finding ways to experience enjoyment in the midst of this field established by castration, which is why if you're looking at the graph of desire, you can see that castration is out here. It's a reminder that even though you're pursuing the drive and keeping it alive as best you can, you are always doing so within a field of castration. I mean, at this point, what you've realized is that you're not the only lacking other in the scene. The big other themselves also has a few gaps. You're not the only one that's castrated. The question that we're going to leave unanswered for now is what comes next? Is this just a simple looping around of the top of the graph of desire? Is there a beyond here? One of you has suggested that the beyond here might be love. There might be room for something like love out here, which as you've heard me say would be a split subject, living their lives not in relation to the demand of the big other, but another split subject. It's possible. Now, if I was a better artist, this would effectively look like a swirl of some kind. As I know you're a better reader, you can also look at this and pretty thoroughly map this into the graph of desire. You can also map this into the table on 174 that Lacan is working up in the middle section of this seminar. Each of these components also has a place in the ontology I offered tonight. This is pretty much where we find ourselves now with this very bizarre expression that anxiety can be the wellhead of jouissance. This is where we find ourselves on the eve of our final session. I'm going to go ahead and save this before things go south. But also now I want to open the floor for questions, comments. If you want me to explain anything more, I'm glad to do it. If you want to think about a way to do this too, let your eyes follow the trajectory that I've outlined, but also do this. Note the relationships that are established with this map. There's a lateral field where five terms line up and a vertical plane in which five terms line up. Now it maps pretty well 
when you start thinking about the origin of desire and the origin of anxiety, this is what we've been talking about tonight. But what an interesting trajectory suggested by this. I think it's easy enough to see this trajectory, but how about this one? And maybe this is the path that would allow us to come up with an answer to this question. After all, doesn't it have the same structure? Here and here, we see the same structural parallel in the definition I've given of love. It could work. Just a thought though. Can I ask why it's a lozenge for the love uh, math team? Because I mean, I don't know what worries about what worries me about that is it doesn't seem like it's a reci reciprocal relationship at all. Um, not that the lozenge implies reciprocity, but but yeah, I mean, in seminar twenty, for example, he says that there is no you know sexual relationship, right? Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm just curious if you can maybe explain why it's not maybe a question mark between those two or something like that. I think a question mark could work too. Um, when I'm not doing Lacanian stuff, another symbol that I use in here, just to suggest that there's some sort of a connection, it's just two little, it's just a collection of dots, which can suggest like an analogical relationship. Um, but I like the lozenge here for all the reasons that Lacan does, because it suggests all of these different possibilities. It doesn't have to be a relationship. And here I'm thinking of Lacan's use of the French rapport. So I'm not here suggesting that there is a sexual relationship in the Lacanian sense that he works out in 20. I mean, what I would just read this lozenge as here is as saying, living a life in relation to, maybe in response to, or if you don't like that, alongside, attentive to, reactive to even. But I like that living a life in relation to. In fantasy, you see somebody living their life in relation to what they think other people want from them. There's that A. Out here, if indeed we're going to put love, and I don't even know if this is the best mathing for love. It's the one that I think is the most workable and suggestive. Yeah, I mean, it... I mean, I, I, I'm curious what you think of this, um, if it was the signifier of the split other, because I mean, when we're talking about love, it's, it's giving, giving, it's a gift, right? It's giving something that you lack to someone that doesn't want it. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that the signifier doesn't come up here, right? Yeah. So maybe if we drew it then, a signifier of the lack in the subject, this would also line up with some other things that Lacan routinely says. Maybe something along yeah. those lines. Because he is very careful in suggesting that the subject is a signifier presented to another signifier. And that might do the work of, of, of keeping us a little truer to what he's doing in seminar 20. Um, when he refuses to allow there to be a rapport. 
between um, the masculinized body and the feminized body. Now that's a different seminar and I would also offer that as a possibility. If we wanted to take this into seminar 20 and do a close careful reading of 20 the way that we have done for 10, I'm open to that. We've tried it before and some of you have even done reading groups on seminar 20. You know it's wild. You know we could spend some time working with it. A lot of people have made a lot of 20 and I would certainly be willing if that's the lay of the land to give it a go with y'all. But so I'm all about thinking of new ways to mathematize, if you will, love. This one has the benefit of simplicity, but I think this one might have a little more truth to it. So I really appreciate the suggestion. What else, my friends? You can see me, but I can't see you. For the spiral, is this like a universal path of the graph of desire or what specific subject is it for? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Um, the graph of desire does a really good job in many ways of mobilizing thought and allowing us to kind of work our way through here. This one has the added benefit of providing us with a coherent image that allows us to really narrate our reading of seminar 10. So this is kind of like the image if the if seminar 10 begins with the graph of desire, this is where I would have us end is with something like this. And I may be premature in offering this because we are we do have another session. This isn't our final pass at this. Um, what kind of a subject would this be for? Um, I offered the earlier bit about the move from the subject of pure need into the imaginary pre-edible triangle, into the symbolic square, into the emergence of A and the arrival as a split subject, desirous and with fantasy. I'm offering this up as ontological. I'm willing to go that far. I would like to suggest that if you are in the field of language, if you are a human who occupies a position in the symbolic, all of these things are going to be popping at some level for you. Now we know that a lot of other things could happen. This is very much a schematic based on how I understand neurosis functioning. And again, just from reading Lacan, you might run this through logics of perversion and come up with something really different because depending on how this all crucial element, the origin of desire, depending on how castration plays out, you can have a lot of different trajectories here. If castration, the name of the father, is completely foreclosed, you're not going to have this spin out in the same way, if at all. So the subject this is for is a neurotic subject. If we were going to trace this through a psychotic subject, we'd come up with something different. 
In fact, what I would suggest is some of these same terms might be moved around. You might even say that in the case of psychosis, these two positions would be swapped out. Except instead of A here, you might just have a big old fat D. The fattest D imaginable of a completely delusional big other. That's not big other in the symbolic sense, but delusional in the imaginary sense. So we're talking about aliens. We're talking about the NSA, Colonel Sanders, the Queen of England, you know the types. Putin now occupies this for many who flirt with psychosis. He's the big D right now. The demanding other that forces you to, I don't know, not use your cell phone in certain circumstances, wrap your head in tinfoil, pray to your gods and the like. So a lot turns on what happens here. If the name of the father and this and this experience of castration is completely rejected, you're going to have a different spin out in the case of psychosis. If it's partial, if it's incomplete, if it's completely shot through with jouissance, namely in the case of perversion, you're also going to have something different coming out. In fact, what I would suggest is in the case of perversion, what would appear here is not the big D, as you would see in psychosis, but instead a return of the imaginary phallus. Because what the pervert clings on, holds on to by disavowing castration is some hope that they can be exactly what the big other lacks. The hope for perversion is that the big other might not have the phallus, but by God, I can be it for them. The pervert wants nothing more than to be the tool for your jouissance. They want to be your dildo. They want to be your pocket pussy. They want to be the thing that is there, an inanimate object that is just there to get you off. And so as you can see, like, if the experience of castration is partial, as in the case of perversion, the next step is not going to be the emergence of little a. It might instead be a return of the imaginary object of the phallus that you as pervert think you can be for some other big other. And it might spin out from there. The split subject would not be what happens next. Instead, you might encounter the barred other, the lacking other that you hope to satisfy. And what we know about perversion, forgive me, but I'm just gonna spin it out at this point. What we know about perversion is that the mathing for the quote, fantasy of perversion, if we can even call it that, is just the opposite of the one for neurosis. This is what perversion looks like. I wanna be that thing for you. So I think that what we have in front of us right now, an answer to this great question, is a neurotic spin out of these terms. If you wanted to make it a perverse spin out, we can do that. And it would just be a substituting of terms. If you wanted to make it a psychotic spin out, we could do that too. Now, maybe it would reorient the entire graph. 
But what we have here is that of a more or less normal subject. And I say that not in the sense of right or wrong. I say that in the sense of average, what usually happens when somebody is fully integrated into the symbolic. And I also say fully with quotation marks, because as we know, there's always some irreducible part of the subject of pure need, the bio-animalistic subject that is the start of all of this, the very origin of human life as we individuals know it. There's always some part of that body that cannot be metabolized by the symbolic, that cannot be signified. That becomes the origin of the real. That in the case that Lacan is describing in seminar 10, is what we see right here. The part that cannot be metabolized by the symbolic is excluded. But we know that it's an interior exclusion, by the way. Little a, pages 160, 161. By the way, you can do a careful reading of Ikrit and see this very same thing over and over again. The real is not there before the symbolic. It's what gets kicked out of the process of symbolization, what the symbolic can't process. The real is an effect structure, as you heard me say at the start of our time together, and probably in other scenarios too. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.